0: I'm excited to say Madam Vice President all day today. Oh
1: my gosh. As many times as I can. and It just gives me chills. It just gives me chills.
0: Anjali, do you have
2: one of those Vice President auntie sweatshirts?
1: I don't, but I do have a Kamala Harris t-shirt that has, it's like her, it's when she's a child. The photo is her when she's a child and it just. Oh, well. Oh, it's just so special to me.
0: You know, I've been very impressed with, I, I was a big Warren fan in the primary. Mm-hmm. I've been yeah. so impressed with Biden's campaign. He like actively is like Biden Harris are equal sizes on their logo and everything. He doesn't seem mm-hmm. to like be trying to like minimize her role, um, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that made me, you know, like him more and more through the campaign after being, you know, starting off pretty disappointed.
2: It probably helps for the graphic designers also that they're, the letters of their name are approximately the same, right? It's not like it's Biden Ketchikowski or something like that.
0: graves so. Fitzsimmons.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fitzsimmons. like, dude, way to suck up all the air on the poster there.
1: <laughs> yeah, they have to the put banana. you on the other side of the sign, Guthrie. You not get billing it's on like, the front wait, side. It's like, wait,
0: there are three people on the ticket? I don't... If I ever run for office, I'm just going the Madonna route and just... Yeah, got Guthrie. Guthrie, yeah. <laughs>
1: Or GGF.
2: Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. This morning, dear listener, as all eyes are on our nation's capital for the inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris, I'm grateful to be joined by two guests who are certainly putting in the work to bring about a more just and inclusive society. Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons is a fellow with the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at the Center for American Progress. His work focuses on a wide range of issues related to the role of religion in American public life, including promoting a progressive vision of religious liberty that champions LGBTQ rights. Guthrie is also the author of the new book, Just Faith. Reclaiming Progressive Christianity. Good morning, Guthrie.
0: Good morning, Jack. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a joy to be here on this glorious day.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. And also joining us is Anjali Anjetti, co-founder of the Georgia chapter of They See Blue, an organization for South Asian Democrats. In the fall of 2020, she also served as the Georgia Asian Asian American and Pacific Islander Leadership Council for the Biden-Harris campaign. And she's no slouch with the written word herself. Anjali is author of not one, but two books that are coming out in 2021, Southbound, essays on identity inheritance and social change and the novel the parted Earth welcome Anjali
1: thank Thank you so much, Jack, and good morning, Guthrie. It's so wonderful to be here with you both, especially on such an exciting day.
2: Yes. So on the last episode of our show, I had a great conversation with David Street from Bread for the World and Ibrahim Mukman from Masjid Muhammad, where the energy was really peak the morning after the historic win in the Senate runoff in Georgia. And then just hours after we closed our conversation, that celebratory mood uh, that was in the air was curtailed by the horrific attack on the Capitol so I'm especially happy to bring back a bit of that good energy today with Anjali who played such a big part in the tremendous voter turnout from the South Asian community in Georgia and uh, and I want to start right there and first ask Anjali uh, after so many months of hard work and perseverance how are you holding up how are you doing
1: You know, it's been such a whirlwind, Jack, on so many different levels. First of all, um, a part of me is still in disbelief Mm. um, that we did it. We knew how we were trending in Georgia. Mm -hmm. We knew that we had an incredible organizing effort that had developed over decades. Right. Um, And more recently under Stacey Abrams and Nse Ufot from the New Georgia Project um and black voters matter um so we knew we had sort of the foundation to um bring in democratic voters for both of these elections Mm -hmm. um but i'm still dumbfounded to be (laughs) quite honest that that we pulled this off i mean look we are in the midst of a pandemic, Yeah, we have a state government that is completely controlled by the GOP, right? We have our governor Brian Kemp, and we have a Republican controlled General Assembly um, that has, you know, put up a blockade preventing us from doing anything to slow the spread of this uh, deadly virus. Mm. So we were operating under incredibly strenuous situ- uh, situations, right, like most of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and it's, it's, it's been a thrill. Um, it's been a thrill, I, I feel that we came together as organizers and voters and activists, and we, we did the work. Um, and we, we deserved this. Yeah. Um, and, and- um, you know, we did this with Um, years of 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 barriers erected by the georgia gop to keep us from voting Um, and hopefully you've got you've got
2: some uh some good ice packs for your feet at this point
1: yes absolutely (laughs) you know we we didn't do much canvassing into the runoff Uh but yes those last um you know i probably hit 400 doors the last days leading up to the to the runoff, um, and I was also a poll worker too. Well, so then, the actual day of the election, I was, your I was 15 <laughs> hours helping voters um, use our voting machines. Um, so, um, so, but, it, it, but it's a, it's a it's a thrill. Um, yeah. It's it's a thrill. I I feel like we did our part, um, and I look forward to working with um, supporting other states doing the same type of work in, in 2022.
2: Great, great. Well, I want to take a step back and just um, ask a little bit about your, your backgrounds and your stories. Uh, Guthrie, uh, your work focuses so much on the Christian left around progressive, the progressive movement within Christianity and particularly on LGBTQ issues within the Christian community. So I'm, I'm curious, was there a particular formative religious or spiritual experience that you had that, that shaped your relationship with your faith and its
0: values? There was, and thank you for that question, Jack, and thank you, Anjali. I just want to underscore the whole country thanks you, you know, Kentucky, <laughs> Kentucky thanks you for demoting Mitch McConnell, our senator. Uh, <laughs> I'm coming to you from Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, you know, we're excited, especially as you said about 2022 and building that kind of multiracial, mm-hmm. inclusive vision for the future. So I just want to thank you for your words, Anjali. You are then-
1: very welcome, Guthrie, my pleasure. <laughs>
0: And then Jack, to your question, there was a formative experience. I grew up in a very liberal Methodist church and, uh, my parents are both union organizers and before that community organizers. So I was raised in a very activist household in the womb. I was on the picket line with my mother, Mm. uh, fighting for workers dignity. Wow. But then I really kind of, and my grandmother also, uh, was uh, very active in her faith and social justice. And so I feel like I'm carrying on the tradition of my family, but I really made it my own around the invasion of Iraq. And we saw, uh, I was 13 at the time, and I preached a sermon on Youth Sunday um, at my church. Uh, you know, in the they, every Sunday, every one Sunday a year, they led a youth uh preach and I preached about, you know, loving your enemies and it didn't seem right to be bombing our enemies. And it seemed so obvious. Um, And there was also a disconnect between a a fellow Texas Methodist, I grew up in Houston, uh, a fellow Texas Methodist, George W. Bush, kind of leading this immoral and illegal war. And from that moment, I just felt a calling to work at the intersection of faith and progressive politics. And somehow it's a very small field to be able to you know, make a living and uh, work in this field. But uh, I was able to, I've been able to kind of chart a course working uh, on immigration reform, on countering Islamophobia and now at the Center for American Progress and always just driven by that kind of childlike, this is wrong and this is so contradictory to the gospel. It seems so obvious. How can the adults be you know, doing all of this evil and claiming God's divine sanction.
2: Yeah, well, I, I uh, certainly i have known you uh, for a few years now in a, in a couple of, of different capacities. Uh, first meeting you when you were um, with um, uh, the uh, Immigration Reform Organization. And, and that, uh, you know, so it's, it's cool to hear about how, how that's been a consistent thread through your life. So I can, I can see that your family was a, a really big part of that formative experience. Uh, Anj- Anjali, uh, like me, you grew up in in multiple uh, traditions in your household, and then ended up embracing a different worldview. So, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what was your religious upbringing.
1: You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what Guthrie said. Um, so, and, and I and I think how you are brought up really sort of informs um, how you feel about religion, right, and whether or not you embrace it. So. Um, my parents, uh, two wonderful people that I'm still lucky to have in my life today, um, were fairly moderate politically. In fact, we often didn't really talk about politics in my house. Uh, not that it was forbidden, but it just wasn't something that was brought up. They were not activists. Um, they were sort of moderate Dems. And uh, my mother uh, was born and raised Catholic. My father is a Hindu Um uh, who is an immigrant from India. And um, I was exposed to both religions um, together. Um, neither of my parents were very religious people. So we attended mass, um, you know, some of the time. And um, uh, the temples I went to weren't even really in the United States. We would, uh, we would go to them when we were in India. My father oh, did not make um, visiting temples a, a priority in his life um but um but activism I sort of came to on my own um and if I had to trace it back to any instance it would probably be the 1982 killing of Vincent Chen which happened in Detroit um, while we were living probably 15-20 minutes um outside of Detroit um and it started making me think about I was eight years old at the time it started making me think about um justice which was a relatively new notion for me um i had not understood what justice meant i had understood what faith meant and i understood what charity meant Um, and then i started seeing justice as something different and not part of the teachings that i learned when i went to mass or when i went to ccd um for my classes about the catholic faith Um, or when um, I heard my father's prayers, it wasn't really justice. Um, And so there was a dissociation there for me um, in religion. Had I I seen the relationship between the two and that seen that you could have had justice in religion, perhaps I would have come out the other end of it differently but that wasn't part of the tradition of my parents and of the people who were religious around me. Mm. Um, So I I stepped back from religion um, and I have for some time and I've I've continued to live a very justice-centered life. Um, My life really does center around activism, Um, but I do have a lot of respect for people who are religious, who make justice the focus, Um, You know, I'm thrilled to have uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock as my um, as my U.S. senator as of today. And um, interestingly enough, I I found myself making very compelling arguments for him and convincing voters who were not religious to vote for him, who were concerned the fact that he was, uh, you know, a Christian, the fact that he he was a pastor of a church, um, the fact that, um, religion was such a large aspect of his life but yeah. it was a very easy um, it was very easy for me to do because um, you know when when I when I see people incorporate justice in their religion I you know it kind of gives me the kind of faith in it that I that left me I think when I was growing up
2: so Anjali staying with you for a bit a bit more I'm I am curious about your experience organizing in Georgia um, I do I do want to just ask first so the Desi Blue until I saw it written out I was I was always hearing Desi Blue in ter- in, yes. in, in, as in the term for South Asian. So so I just wanted to quickly ask what is the origin of the group's name?
1: So it is actually the origin is is Desi. It is uh-huh. sort of a play on the word Got right it. which okay. is which is uh, roughly translated to to countrymen and refers to um, South Asians um, that are living abroad, living away from the subcontinent, but it seems to be used most in the United States to refer to South Asians with some kind of roots um, in this in the subcontinent. And and it and I think initially it was the organization was called Daisy uh-huh. um, Blue, but um, but uh, they, they they changed it. Um, Actually, uh, to to be more inclusive, right. because not everyone in the subcontinent actually identifies as they um, see. Sure. Some, some, you know, it, it sometimes is a term that is more associated with um, Indian Americans right. um, than you know, Bangladeshi Americans, Pakistani Americans. So it was an attempt to be more um, inclusive, but you still sort of have the the play on the sound.
2: So turning to your organizing, um, the South Asian community is, it's composed of many different religious traditions. And I, Mm -hmm. I was curious how, as you were starting to talk about before, what were some of the various religious groups that you encountered in the South Asian community in Georgia? And how did that factor into, um, some of your approach to your organizing work?
1: You know, we have a lot of diversity here in Georgia. Um, we we have uh, we have Hindus we have Sikhs we have um, Christians we have Muslims uh, we have Jains um, Buddhists so that it's it's a pretty diverse um, you know we we very much are in Georgia a reflection of the the faiths in the subcontinent um, and um, interestingly enough though uh, many people of faith uh, in the South Asian community. Um, are sort of divorced from politics, right? They don't see it as necessarily one and the same thing. Mm. Um, Some people um, that we've sort of worked with and encouraged to vote feel like their faith is, you know, sort of the opposite of, of politics and that you can't really be political and be religious at the same time. Um, So we do run into some of those challenges. um, But what we have done with our messaging and we we formed in August of 2019, although several of us who formed the chapter were also very active um, in uh, encouraging South Asians to vote, beginning with John Ossoff's first race in 2017. um, What what the message we try to get across is, is you don't have to be political or religious. And in fact, politics, particularly democratic politics are very, uh, they're very supportive of your faith that they there are, there's a lot of crossover there, there are a lot of similarities. um, And that uh, civic engagement in general, in fact, um, is very sort of endemic to your, your religious faith, to your history, to your ancestors, um, and to your traditions. And um, and so that's been a big part of our messaging is that this is the same sort of necessary work um, that we do at AC Blue that you do when you do outreach through your um, faith organization uh, you know your temple your mosque whatever it whatever it may be that mm-hmm. um, they are they are one and the same they are they are attacking actually the same problem. Just through different using different avenues.
2: And what does it say to you that these this record number of uh, South Asian Americans in Georgia uh, elected a Black pastor and a Jewish millennial to Congress?
1: I think it says a lot to me, Um, and and I think I think what it says is that an inclusive vision, no matter who is who is uh, putting that forth, an inclusive vision that includes everyone. Is the healthiest kind of government that we can have. Um, if you are, you know, Jewish or Hindu or Christian or Muslim, if somebody somebody goes to bat for you, somebody runs who runs for office, it doesn't really matter what their religion is. All that matters is that they have an inclusive vision, that they have compassion for all groups of people, that they are going to call out and rectify inequalities that they witness. Um, and that they are going to advocate for everyone. And, and you know, uh, of course, it's wonderful that we now will have a Jewish senator and a um, progressive Christian senator. Um, and, uh, but, but what attracted people most to those candidates was that they wanted the best for everyone, that they were not mm-hmm. going to leave anybody behind in their vision in the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what drove voters to them. Is is that uh, you know they wanted to be seen, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to be seen. Everyone wants their needs known, um, and the issues that are important to them. And people want to tell their stories to people about about how much they are hurting. They want to be heard by their candidates. Yes. And and John and Reverend Warnock heard everybody. They listened. They really took in what people were struggling with and they they promised to help and and i think that you know were the, the, the election results uh are, are the result of that
2: guthrie so speaking of uh wanting to be seen and heard as as we are recording this thousands of national guard troops are in downtown dc just a few miles from where i'm sitting um which is a, a direct uh, show of force in response to the large white supremacist led attack on the capitol um what I, i'm curious what you're w- witnessing about how folks across the christian community are reckoning with the christian nationalist messaging that was at the root of that attack
0: thanks for that question jack and and first i want to say i've been praying for everyone in dc for their safety everyone in tacoma uh when i lived in dc at tacoma was actually my metro stop that i went to every morning oh, so great. uh It's nice to be virtually back in Tacoma. And I know having so many friends in D.C., the fear that has gripped the city because of the white nationalist uh, violence and the president encouraging, you know, basically his own militia to try to, you know, keep him in power. And it was so alarming, I think, to the vast majority of Christians to see that Jesus saves uh signs the people praying the insurrectionists praying on the senate floor when they took over the capitol to see that that there were pastors in the in the self-professed pastors you know in the among the insurrectionists and christian nationalism has christian nationalism has to be named as a heresy and and i don't uh use that lightly i don't go around calling everybody a heretic. But Christian nationalism is such a distortion of the gospel that it needs to, you know, people that disagree on a lot of other issues need to come together around saying that is not, uh, you know, accept uh, compatible with Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. And there's a great group called Christians Against Christian Nationalism who are organizing kind of within our our own Christian community to to fight Christian nationalism. And I think that's important, just like there's a, a great group called Showing Up for Racial Justice, which is organizing white people to, you know, talk to other white people about racial justice and not pu- putting that burden on uh, people of color always. And so Christians have a lot of work to do. We can't just turn away and say, those aren't real Christians or, you know, that's not. Uh, people are doing that in the name of the gospel, in the name, you know, asking uh, you know, other Christians to come out and rally, and and I think most of the people in that crowd probably identified, we know, as Christians. Mm-hmm. And so we have to condemn it, we have to organize, and we have to contest, you know, what it means to be a Christian. Because when that message, in my book I call it the Westboro Baptist Church effect, mm. where th- that kind of really far right-wing extremist Christian message gets so much attention, that it leads to people, like Anjali was saying earlier, about people being wary of a pastor running for office, like Reverend Warnock, who is nothing like, you know, the people that stormed the Capitol. And yet we claim to follow the same uh, sacred texts and the same Savior, so so we have some responsibility.
2: In your book, you talk about reclaiming progressive Christianity. So what does that mean to you, and, and what steps do you see as necessary in this particular moment?
0: Yeah, it goes back to growing up and being raised in this very progressive Christian household. And when I came out as gay, it was accepted. And my uh, pastor had actually been Grand Marshal of Pride Parade in Houston when okay. I was in high school. And so it was, I, I was raised, I felt like in a little bubble of progressive Christianity. And then I discovered that that is not the norm, that the Westboro Baptist, the Christian nationalist insurrectionists, the, the kind of hate. Uh, that Mike Pence and Kelly Leffler and many people uh, cloak in the gospel is really what people associate with Christianity right now in our country and i i 've heard that in every church that i 've been a part of uh, as an adult where people feel like they 're the uh, small minority and actually uh, there are many progressive Christians in every uh, city and most small towns in this country, you will find churches that are fighting for economic, racial, social, environmental justice every day. And so I I feel called to this work of encouragement and helping people see each other and make connections to organize and fight for change.
2: So uh, Anjali, looking to the future, um, as you have this newly energized set of voters in the South Asian community, thanks to the efforts uh, by groups like They See Blue, what will leaders both in Georgia and across the country need to do to keep your community engaged in, in their corner?
1: You know, I think the first thing that we have to do is um, reckon with voting rights in this country. Mm. Um, you know, we have the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act that needs to be passed immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, people are not going to continue to be engaged, especially first-time voters, if their ro- voting rights are rolled back um, right after they vote for the first and second time because, right. as you know, Jack, we had many Asian Americans vote um, in... 2020 in November for the first time. And in fact, the number of Asian Americans in Georgia who voted in November 2020 uh, almost doubled from 2016. So if we now then take away their voting rights, if we now erect barriers to voting, as is that's what's happening right now um, in Georgia, of course, they're not going to come out again. Of course, they're going to think that their vote doesn't matter or doesn't count. So I think to maintain this momentum, we absolutely must make voting rights a priority. Our Secretary of State, Brad Rasenberger, who has been getting a ton of praise for simply not stealing an election, mm. is in the process of, of, uh, of perhaps getting rid of no excuse absentee voting, um, uh, making it difficult for Georgia voters to vote. Um, you know, we have we have people who are running our elections now who see this as a huge problem and they are in positions of power here in Georgia um, that um, that and, and they're going to implement policies and procedures to make it difficult to vote. And they can because they are solely within power right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got to fight this and we've got to fight this hard. I mean, even between the November election and our January runoff, we had counties that closed polling places. Mm -hmm. Um, We had counties in Forsyth County, I believe six polling places closed in a two month period. Voters who voted at one location early could not go to that same location and vote early again. In Cobb County, this was done in predominantly African American and Latinx neighborhoods where they closed polling places. So unfortunately, we have Republicans at every level of government, including, uh, you know, uh, Board of Elections at the county level, all the way up through Secretary of State, who are intent on rolling back our ability to vote here in Georgia. And these communities that have historically been ignored by, by both parties, quite frankly, Democrats and Republicans, who suddenly feel like they have a stake in the future of their country's politics, Mm -hmm. if we then deprive them of the ability to vote, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to be for them to come out again. Um, So so it's a very fragile uh, position that we're in here, especially in Georgia, where we we have turned blue, but unfortunately, our state government hasn't. And right now, our state government has immense power to disenfranchise us.
2: So, thinking specifically about the, the, the South Asian community again, um, clearly a big story from, from the, the last couple of years has been around Hindu nationalism in India and mm-hmm. Modi's strong relationship with Trump. Um, was this a factor or in, in some of the responses that you received from your, your outreach? Was, was there a difference in, in political identification with different demographics in the South Asian community that you work with?
1: The vast majority... Of Hindu nationalists are Republican. However, the group that is Democrat because there absolutely are Hindu nationalist Democrats here um, are very vocal and they're very mm. visible. And the issue is, is they hold positions of power. So they are the heads of cultural organizations. They are on the boards of temples, for example. They are, uh, you know, officers in the PTA. They hold these positions, um, and in them, uh, they attract they attract followers to that ideology. Mm-hmm. And it's an enormous problem. Democratic uh, political operatives are not paying nearly enough attention to the way that Hindu nationalism has infiltrated u s. politics. Um, and it's a, a serious, you know, I'm, I'm, it's a serious situation. And, you know, as we have these sort of white nationalist, quote, Christians, right, who are running U.S. government, we are in danger of having uh, having Hindu nationalists uh, acquire power in U.S. elections. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, It's really the same thing. You know what I mean? There's not a whole lot of difference between Hindu nationalists and white nationalists. Um, right? All of it is right-wing extremism, um, you know, weaponizing religion against minorities. Um, mm-hmm. This is the same story from the, you know, beginning of time of any kind of extremist religions. Um, so it is, it, you know, I, I, I've been sounding the alarm, um, and we should all be sounding the alarm that we are seeing this same pattern in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I said, uh, they they predominantly align with the Republican Party. But, you um, You know uh it's it's something we really need to pay attention to in the democratic party as well
2: so guthrie on this idea of of uh religious pluralism and and religious freedom within our society uh there's there's definitely been this strong message of inclusivity that's been broadcast by the biden harris cabinet selections or um i think i I saw in sojourners eight catholics seven jews one episcopalian two baptists uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, a handful of of folks who who we don't necessarily know their religious affiliation. But um, what what do these picks say to you about uh, championing a nation of religious pluralism? And and what are your hopes for policy around religious freedom in the U.S. during the coming administration?
0: That's a a great question, and I first want to just underscore what Anjali said about the need the need to connect. Um, religious nationalism around the world and see it, you know, it's an old story about people weaponizing religion to harm minority populations. And that answer, like you said, Jack is religious pluralism and embracing a pluralistic society across, you know, in many different areas. And I think the Biden administration has already started on a a strong foot by this diverse religiously diverse cabinet by really uh doing a lot of outreach during the campaign i was part of a volunteer volunteer with the believers for biden uh campaign effort which brought in a lot of different religious outreach efforts and they've pledged uh today to overturn the muslim ban right which uh we think is such a huge priority for charting a new course on religious pluralism in this country which then connects to our ability to champion it abroad my center for american progress colleague maggie siddiqui and i have a new op-ed out in religion news service uh, on that came out on saturday about our ability to to champion religious pluralism and religious freedom around the world starts with us championing it at home and Mm -hmm. upholding human rights at home and so i'm excited that the biden administration is getting off to a strong start and that they're that diver, religion is one piece of diversity. so i love that sojourner's article because biden has pledged to make his uh, you know staff and administration reflect the diversity of the united states and that's, you know, on so many different levels that i don't want to try to name because i'll miss one, but religion <laughs> is one of them. right. and I think that's a a beautiful thing that people see themselves represented in government and that we can turn a page because the, the Christian nationalism that we've seen on the rise over the past four years, it's kind of been emboldened by a lot of these culture war issues where, you know, Trump said there will be no more religion if Biden wins, or Biden's trying to hurt God, or you can't say Merry Christmas anymore. And I'm offended when people say Merry Christmas to me as a Christian because I'm like, how do you know I'm a Christian? Mm. Why are you aggressively saying Merry Christmas to me in a pluralistic society? It was
2: the you know, elf costume like, you were wearing, Guthrie.
0: I'm like, you're right, <laughs> but you're wrong. I'm like, you're so right. You got you you pegged me correctly, but you're also really wrong. And I. <laughs> Uh so like and that was egged on by the administration. And so yep. I, I think it's profound that we have and also at the in the White House with uh president now almost a few hours away, <laughs> President elect Biden. And he talks a lot about his faith on a personal level as a Catholic, but also really uh brings in a lot of different religious voices and then soon to be Madam Vice President, which is an exciting thing to say, Kamala Harris. You know, her family is a very religiously diverse family, right. and so I'm I'm so excited. Yeah, it's go- uh, uh, a future of religious pluralism. I was going to say to
2: Anjali, you know, you've you've got uh, uh, the Catholic background, you've got the Hindu background. Um, do you want to go for a hat trick? Do you have any Black Baptist um, connections to 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 fit in there?
1: Yeah, well. Uh- you know, let me tell you, I have this new senator now, this new U.S. senator. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Reverend Raphael Warnock.
2: Yeah. That good. right
1: now is my only connection, but let me tell you, Jack, I am very proud of it.
2: Okay, good, good. Well, if you if you link up with a Jewish partner that you want to throw into the mix also. We'll- Seriously, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So in the uh, first part of our program, we heard about our guests' projects and and work in the community. And and now as we do every episode in uh, this next part of our program, it's time to turn the mics over to my dear guests to ask them if they have any questions of their own for each other. This is an opportunity for you to ask about anything that you like to, to follow up on on each other's spiritual journey journeys or life stories, anything that you are familiar with coming in today you want to understand better about each other's traditions, anything you realize you might have misunderstood. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning while at the same time not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. So uh, I'll turn it over to you. Anjali, do you have any questions for Guthrie?
1: I do. I Guthrie, I want to know how it feels to see a progressive black Christian become a U.S. senator when it seems like for years... Um, You know the the right wing extremist Christians were the ones elected to office and holding political power in this country. I mean, you know, Trump. I don't even think he ever claimed he was a Christian, but but we have had you know for years a a number of very high powered um, politicians who very loudly identified as their sort of warped and grotesque version of Christianity. But now we actually have an authentic, progressive black Christian. How does that feel to somebody who has been sort of in a part of this movement for a really long time?
0: Thank you so much for that question, Anjali. It feels amazing. And some of my earliest memories of you know faith-based activism where my parents were involved in the minimum wage campaign in houston in 1996 of course now we're fighting for 15 dollars uh, minimum wage but then in houston the ask was and it was a big ask was 650 for the city uh to try to raise the minimum wage to 650 and the black church was leading that effort and i remember my church was a predominantly white you know liberal methodist church but we would go to these black churches and leaflet and the black church has always been the moral conscience of our nation and of the American church. And it just is, and has also been maligned as we saw during the uh, uh, Georgia runoffs. And so I was kind of pinching myself throughout the whole campaign, just Reverend Warnock's uh, campaign was so monumental. I was like, win or lose, Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to change everything for how people see uh, activism and Christianity in this country. And then for him to win is just, it's beautiful. And I I was sharing before we started the recording that our seminary that we both went to, Union Theological Seminary in New York, uh, which I went to because Dr. Cornell West called it the physical embodiment of what it means to be a progressive Christian. It is this kind of center for uh, progressive Christian activism and theology, that uh, where the Reverend Doctor, the late Reverend Doctor James Cone taught Black Liberation Theology, mm. and Reverend Warnock actually eulogized uh, Doctor Cone when he died several years ago. And this has been, I think, the heart of Christianity. Liberation Theology is the heart of Christianity, and yet it's been so hard for so many Christians to come to terms with it because they have to be unsettled, and it's not the kind of mainstream, moderate view. And So to have Reverend Warnock in the Senate, I think, just opens people's eyes to the gospel in a way uh, that will revolutionize so many people's understanding of it. And someone and it's like someone that we're so accustomed to fate kind of uh, Christians that let us down or Christians mm-hmm. that are hypocrites and don't live up to the values that Jesus taught. And we have somebody now in public life that lives up to them and calls us to live up to them in a really positive way. So, yeah, I couldn't be more excited uh, to have him in the United States Senate. Uh, and and I really am grateful for that question. Guthrie, feel free to... And Guthrie, I have a question. Can I follow up with a question, Jack? Is that allowed? Please do. Anjali, I was very intrigued when you said earlier that you uh, heard from some voters in Georgia who were concerned about kind of mixing faith and politics and... Mm-hmm. And kind of uh, moving away from, you know, identifying with a religious tradition yourself, but still appreciating the role of religion in public life. And I wonder if you can just share a little bit more about what you told people that were a little hesitant about uh, there being a role for religion. Because that's something I've heard my whole life as well, mostly from more progressive people who have seen religion used to do so much harm, they would prefer not to be mentioned at all.
1: You know it's interesting i I think for all voters, no matter what their religious or faith background is, no matter what their even racial or ethnic background or citizenship status or whatever um, is is at the end of the day they they want to know how people feel about the the issues um, and so what I try to do when I when I talked to people, um, especially people who were hesitant, saying, oh, you know, do we really want someone involved in any so deeply involved in any religion, let alone a religious leader? Um, a part of our government is, you know, let's let's take a look at what they stand for that is consistent with your religious beliefs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the belief of your religion um, that the sick should be healed, for example. Well, we're living in the middle of a global pandemic and have um, have been dealing with a government that that has has not essentially done anything to slow this um, deadly outbreak. Um, and you know, we now have four hundred thousand people dead. When I was knocking on doors, it was closer to I think three hundred and sixty. But regardless, right? It's been an, a, a it's been a massacre. Um, so taking principles from religion and tying them to, you know, the issues, right, the, the bigotry, um, mm-hmm. you know, the hate, you know, is this is this, you know, I don't think that's part of your faith. Right. I don't think that's inherently part of your faith. And, and here is what um, here is what Reverend Warnock feels about this, about bigotry, about about hate. Um, you know, people who, for example, um I, I talked to one man um, when I was out canvassing and and he was talking about um, you know, he was he was an addict. He had been jailed. He'd been terribly treated by the criminal justice system. And um I talked about the criminal justice reform that that Reverend Warnock supported. Um, and so I convinced him that way. He was very hesitant to. He wasn't going to vote. He was it's not that he was going to vote for the Republicans. He was just going to sit it out um because uh, one of the main reasons was because he didn't want to vote for somebody that identified so strongly with the faith. Um, and we talked about, you know, it's really about when you're talking to voters, it's really about finding out what issues are important to them and then connecting them to whatever groups that they identify with. You know, see, You were treated unfairly by the criminal justice system. Reverend Warnock, you know, believes in criminal justice reform. Um, You know, you do a lot of, uh, you know, you do a lot of volunteer work through your temple, um, you know, with with the food bank, the local food bank. Well, you know, here here are here are candidates who, um, you know, want to increase the minimum wage, um, who want to put a moratorium on. mortgage and rent payments uh, for people who are suffering so badly in this economy. So I think once people start um, really seeing issues as issues and seeing people as more than just, you know, maybe some of their identifiers, but as, as people that, that actually hold the same values as their religious um, backgrounds and history, um, then, I, then I think that kind of humanizes it all. Um, and makes people see the sort of the connectivity between um, on, uh, compassionate policies um, and uh, compassionate uh, scripture uh, uh, or other types of readings um, and, and how, how they're really sort of the same thing. That was a great question.
0: Yes, and that was a, a great answer. And I, I had another question uh, being in Kentucky now, and what message do you have for the South? I've been so impressed by the AAPI organizing in Georgia, uh, and you know, what lessons can there be for the rest of us, kind of in the broader South, uh, that that you've seen based on your experience in Georgia?
1: You know first of all i stand in complete solidarity with all southern states including kentucky i was absolutely (laughs) absolutely devastated when mitch mcconnell won again um you know i wasn't surprised but it was devastating all the same and first of all um you know what is frustrating about the south is actually not even ever in the south for me it's outside of the south it's the way that we are so Cruelly stereotyped and blamed for people that become elected officials in our states, and the way that um, things like voting rights are completely erased, um, mm-hmm. things like you know other other barriers that keep people from believing um, uh, believing in uh, in getting involved in politics or government. You know, there are wonderful organizers in Kentucky, in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Louisiana, in Texas, in Florida, who are working around the clock to do this work, but they do not get nearly the support that they deserve because, you know, in their, in the minds of everyone outside of the Deep South, the Deep South is always considered a lost cause, right? The Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, they don't do a whole lot of investment in us, um, when we try to flip seats, I hope Georgia is the beginning of that change. Um, but Kentucky's day is coming. Texas's day is coming. These are states that I see great potential in flipping in the near future. Um, and I, and I think what the the message that we need to emphasize is that, you know, the exorbitant amounts of money that um, Democrats spend on campaigns, does not necessarily trickle down to the actual people on the ground that have been investing in their communities and uh, who live among the people that they are trying to organize and get out the vote in, and uh, and who are who are sort of trying to break down all the barriers that prevent them from voting. So, if we just get people to believe and to invest, um, these states are going to flip. I mean. You know, the South is, is so different from the South that um, people living outside of this area see. We are very multiracial and uh, multi-ethnic and multi-religious. Um, you know, we are, we are just like the rest of the US but we have always had more barriers and less help when it comes to elections. And if we can just support one another and cheer one another um, you know, I mean, I was just crushed when Texas didn't flip. I knew so many organizers there who were working around the clock. Um, and and um, I think the, 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 the takeaway is that let's invest in the local grassroots organizations that are established and that operate year round in getting out the vote in their communities rather than just throwing tons of money at these candidates you know stick with the people that are in it to win it in the long term you know when people in your neighborhood are doing the work of voter outreach and they don't go away at the end of the election right not like campaigns these are organizations grassroots organizers don't go away the work is the same the day after the election as it was the day of the election they are always working to get uh, to build relationships and engage voters so we need to do more of that in Kentucky. We need to support other groups in Kentucky that do that. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, he was like, can we try to find people to put together a list of grassroots voter outreach organizations in various states in the South so that we can start donating money and amplifying the work that they do now and now wait until 2022 when suddenly it's the candidates, whoever they are, that get all the attention and all the money for these really expensive digital ads. Right. That, that don't really persuade voters a whole lot. Right. It's personal relationships that persuade voters. And that comes at the grassroots level. Doesn't usually happen at the campaign level.
2: All right. Well, this has been a very stimulating conversation as usual. Uh, there's, there's so much more to explore together. And I really hope that, um, Guthrie and Anjali, you'll, you'll take the time to keep in touch so that, uh, so you can keep the conversations, uh, going. So great to hear, um, the lessons learned back and forth. And, um, and that's, you know, a big part of, of what we do on the show. We want to connect people and, and, and make sure that these, um, Connections either across traditions or across uh, organizations are continued to happen uh, after after this show. Building off of the uh, the the notes that you were you were just talking about, I, if if you can just articulate maybe one one short thing that um, you would hope people take the time to reflect on and deepen their understanding of regarding your your communities, whether religious community for you, Guthrie, or perhaps a broader cultural community of the, of the South Asian community for you, Anjali. What's one, one important thing for, for folks to, to keep in mind, maybe to, uh, to push back against those stereotypes that we talked about earlier. Guthrie.
0: I would highlight the diversity of American Christianity we are well acquainted with the christian insurrectionists the christian nationalists the westboro baptist church hateful christians on display at the the capitol and we we kind of uh, everyone in this country i've never met someone in this country that's not acquainted with right-wing christianity (laughs) and yet at the same time we need to realize that so much of the angst about uh, right-wing Christianity is rooted in an understanding that it is contrary to the message of Jesus Christ about love, acceptance, and social justice. And that message is so exemplified in Reverend Warnock and progressive Christians across the country who are getting more and more involved in kind of reclaiming what it means to be a Christian in public life and mm-hmm. refusing to continue to center the right-wing expression of our faith. And, you know, the right-wing expression is not going to go away. And we uh, can't hope that, I mean, maybe we can hope that it will go away sometime or people will be less hateful, but it's going to, I, I'm pretty confident that for the rest of my life, there's going to be right-wing Christianity. My hope is that we see the full breadth and diversity and mosaic of uh, Christianity that includes per, the progressive social justice expression of the faith.
2: Great. Anjali, what about, what about for, for you, particularly as folks are thinking about um, this, this energized uh, South Asian voting community?
1: I think the takeaway is that political power does not derive from numbers, right? Numbers-wise, South Asians make up you know, maybe 2% of Georgia, probably less than that. Um, the, A- the AAPI community, the broader Asian American community, is closer to 4.5%. What we know is that elections are decided by very small margins. And political power is about getting involved in your community, whatever community that is, however you identify, and getting them engaged in the electoral process. And even if your community is very small, there's an opportunity to wield some significant political power when we engage and organize together. And I think that's what happened uh, with Asian Americans across the u s is that we know we are smaller in numbers, but we decided to to encourage our community members to come out. and you know, and in some elections, we our margin helped make the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so just keeping in mind that political power is not just a numbers game. It is really about engagement and involvement in the process.
2: And uh, you know, as we think about uh, the day ahead, uh, what hopefully will be a pretty uh, <laughs> boring day event wise, <laughs> I'm hoping that it'll be just peaceful and, and uh, matter of fact, in terms of the transition. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious how each of you feel. Are we uh, at the close of something? Are we at the beginning of something? Do you feel like we're still stuck in the middle of it? How are you feeling about today and anticipating how you feel tomorrow?
0: well i don't know about boring one of my favorite catholic <laughs> leaders in the in the country and that is lady gaga oh yes. is uh, performing at the inauguration so i'm very excited about uh, i i hear there will be another catholic up there joe biden uh too but i'm really excited about lady gaga um, <laughs> i see where your priorities are no i do think it's a, it's a new day it's uh people look to joe biden uh, as, a, as someone who has empathy and understanding, uh, and I think we really need that now. We haven't brought up, you know, the four, we just passed 400,000 dead from the pandemic and we need, I was very moved by the uh, lanterns they had and the lights and flags for all the people because of COVID. And I think we do need that empathetic, kind of inclusive, listen to people approach right now.
1: You know, I think, I think it's going to be what we make of it we need to understand that the very intense work we did to get us to this day needs to continue full force we will always now be at risk of slipping right back to fascism to authoritarian lawless rule and so this is the day to challenge ourselves to remind ourselves this is the beginning, but it's only going to mean something new and different if we continue to do the work and continue to invest in democracy and in uh, and, 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 and taking care of one another.
2: Wonderful. Well, I want to uh, thank both my guests, uh, Anjali Jetti, co-founder of the Georgia Chapter for They See Blue, and Guthrie Grace Fitzsimmons, um, fellow at the Center for American Progress. Thank you both for joining me this morning.
1: Thank you so much, Jack. What an honor.
0: Thank you both.
2: Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guest, Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons, fellow with the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at the Center for American Progress and Anjali and Jetty, co-founder of the Georgia chapter of They See Blue. Be sure to follow both of them on Twitter and Instagram, and look for Guthrie's book, Just Faith, available now, and Anjali's books, Southbound, which is out in April, and The Parted Earth, which is out in May. As always, I want to thank my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hofmeyer and Sue Ketz-Miller, and of course, shout out to our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher, for providing our theme music. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Remember to leave a rating or a review. Follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish. We post regularly on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we want to hear more about what you've learned from our shows, dear listener. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And as usual, keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish, will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.